0: Again, your handshake is coming. Um, If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Joel chapter 3. Um, Some of your Bibles might actually have it as Joel chapter 4. But if you have a fourth chapter, go there. If you don't, then just go to 3. And we're going to start with verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be behind me on the screen. For behold... In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyr? and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia. Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the poor of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them into the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. May God bless the reading of his word. We're continuing on through Joel, and we've only got about, after today, two more, I think. Well, maybe three um, as a conclusion. And uh, we're in the last round, and, and Joel prophesies about judgment. Um, This time, though, it's not judgment against Israel. It's not judgment against Judah. Instead, it is judgment against those other nations that have harassed them, who have attacked them, who have been against them for so long. And uh, at this point, then, it's, it's again, it's not about Israel and Judah, God's people. It's about pagan nations. And so we continue on. Verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them from among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Now, chapter 3 or 4, depending on your Bible, begins with a standard introduction for future blessings. Um, In those days and at that time implies a future period, and we see how it is implied. What will occur at that time, though? God will bring restoration. He will bring back the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. The fact that Judah and Jerusalem are the focus reminds us that Joel was prophesying predominantly or at all together, in the south, and has Jerusalem and Judah in mind as the main focus for his prophetic message. This leads directly to God calling all the nations, and in particular, bringing them to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Within the scriptures, there is no mention of a Valley of Jehoshaphat, and most scholars conclude that it may not be a literal valley, which is being seen, Instead, it seems likely that this is a play on words. Jehoshaphat, the name, actually means Yahweh is judge. So, the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Yahweh judging, essentially. Um, we see how this correlates with the rest of the verse. Because once the nations have been brought to the valley, God will enter judgment with them. There's a legality about the way all of this is stated, it is reminiscent of a courtroom where those accused are brought before the judge. So here it is. The nations are brought before God, the judge, who will judge them based upon what they have done. Yet what have they done? We find that God judges on behalf of his people and heritage, Israel. Israel, this includes both Israel and Judah, were God's covenant people. And likewise, the land which they had been established on was not theirs per se, Instead, it belonged to God who had allotted it to them. Thus, when the nations have come and scattered the people and divided the land, it is actually not just an affront to the people, but more so an affront to God because he has given it to them. Now, some may wonder when all of this happened. And it can represent anything from the great deportations of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, or it may just similarly be um, the deportations found in Amos with the Philistines, the Amorites, and the Edomites during the skirmishes. It is likely that that, uh, this is in mind as we remember that all the nations have gathered. For all the nations to have been gathered implies that all of the enemies of Israel-Judah are brought into judgment. Now, God continues not only with scattering of the people and dividing of the land, but even worse, in the way that the people were scattered. They have cast lots for people. They've traded a boy for a prostitute and a girl for wine. This kind of slave trading is prohibited in the law, and examples are Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 21.14. We especially notice, however, just how sorrowful such slave trading is. The people are treated as little more than livestock. It also shows the decadence of those selling the people because of what they are receiving, and it's all selfish indulgences. And so these people are being traded just so that these other people can eat, drink, and be merry. Now verse 4. What are you to me? O Tyr and Sidon in all the regions of Philistia, are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. At this point in the court proceedings, God brings a challenge to specific nations. Particular he brings Tyr, Sidon, and Philistia. If we remember, these were among the nations Amos prophesied against as well. These particular nations, especially Tyre and Sidon, were sea traders and made quite a profit in slave trading. Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia had at one point been involved with the Israelite and Judean slave trading, working alongside Edom, as we saw in Amos 1, 1 through, uh, chapter 1.6-9. So it is, God asks them a straightforward question. Are you paying me back for something? Such a question shows the implication of the slave trading itself that it is completely unjustified. Because there is no justification for such atrocities against his covenant people, God promises swift judgment against them. He will repay them for what they have done to his people. Now verses 5 and 6. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Before God informs them of their judgment, he makes known what it is that these particular nations have done. And they have plundered the areas of Judah and Israel and taken their precious resources. By doing this, it was, again, not so much from taking the people... But even more seriously, taking it from God Himself. For it was His silver, His gold, His rich treasures, which were taken to their temples or strongholds. But not only this, the people of Judah and Jerusalem were sold to the Greeks. The Greek nations were, compared to the other nations at, a to- at the time, a far distance to travel. Thus, by selling the Judeans to the Greeks, it was a way for these nations to dispossess the people from the land. If there were no people there, then they could inhabit the land after all. The added cruelty of this is that it would be very hard, if not impossible, for such individuals who were sold into slavery from being freed by their families or kinsmen redeemers. So we see the atrocity which has been done against the people by their enemies is actually very great because they have been sold not only to just some nation nearby but to the Greeks who are far away. Now, verses 7 and 8. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Because of their injustice, God will bring back his people. This is interesting to consider. If the nations which had sold the people into slavery were hoping to keep them away for the sake of controlling the land, it won't work. God himself would become their kinsman redeemer, so to speak, and bring the people back from their slavery. In bringing them back, God will make the payment, the slavery of the people, and he will turn it on their own heads. God will do this by sending their sons and daughters into the hands of the people of Judah. In other words, God is going to exile the people through the Judeans. The same Judeans who have suffered unjustly at the hands of their enemies will be the ones who bring them um, back. Granted, scholars note that there is no evidence, or at least no record, of Judeans buying or selling these groups into slavery, thus it is possible that the point God is trying to say is that he will restore his people, but these nations, they will not be restored. Ultimately, Joel is not the one who commands the prophetic word. Instead, the words come from Yahweh, from the Lord. It is he who has declared that these things shall be. Thus says the Lord. Now, the main point of these verses are for God to call forth all the nations for judgment. He focuses on the nations who have been the thorn in the side of his own covenant people. Because of their atrocities and injustices, they will receive a judgment of their own doing. Everything that they had done to the people of God will be done to them. But unlike the people of God, there will be no restoration which takes place. Now what are some applications to this? Um... For the next few weeks, we will be dealing even more with the concept of judgment. In today's text, we were able to see how God called all the nations together to be judged. There are a few things to consider from the text when it comes to this judgment. The first is, all the nations are brought together to be judged. There are a myriad of reasons for this happening, First is the reality that the best way to keep his people safe is to take away all possible threats. Thus, all nations being brought together are to eliminate such, threat, such threats against his people. Once all the nations have been judged, and there will be no nation left which can harm those whom the Lord loves. The second is, the judgments which we saw today are not unfounded. There might be some who wonder, what right does God have to judge? I mean, what have these uh, nations ever done? Well, we can consider it from what we know. First, the nations that are called specifically are called in account of the atrocities which they have done against the people of God. Thus, we can be sure that these nations are especially worthy of judgment because of their evil deeds. But what about the other nations? Certainly not all the nations have been evil toward the people of God. And while this may be the case, we cannot forget that all nations are responsible. We saw this in Amos, how the nations of Tyr, Edom, and Moab are punished by God for their social injustices and atrocities against not just Israel and Judah, but against other nations other than Israel and Judah. In this, then, we remember that God is the one who defines justice. He is the one who defines what is right what is good and righteous, and when nations become transgressors of righteousness, then they become worthy of judgment. In this sense, it is a reminder that God is the ruler of all peoples and all nations, and as such, he is the ultimate judge against them. So how does this affect us in America? It reminds us that God will one day judge even this nation. America will be judged for how it deals with its own people, as well as how it deals with other nations. It is the responsibility of Christians to speak out against our own country when it does evil. I know that there are those who may believe that our nation is a city on a hill against all other nations, but the truth is there is only one city on a hill, and that's the church. Thus, as the church, we transcend the nations in which we sojourn. We call America, for example, our home here and now, and we are blessed to live here. However, that does not mean that this nation is perfect, nor does it mean that this nation is without faults any more than it means any other nation whom believers live is perfect. So at the end, when the judgment of God does come to pass, we can be sure that this nation itself will find judgment for its own atrocities. For the way it has dealt with God's people, in the sense of the church, and how it treats other nations and even its own citizens. Sometimes I think we forget something rather significant. If we consider the apostles in the New Testament, something which took a long time for them to get over was the reality that the cross was not just for the Jewish nation, but for Gentile nations as well. They looked at the Gentile nations as pagans who practiced and worshipped everything that God hated. Everything he detested. True practitioners of abominations against God. Now, we know that much. But the question we often forget to ask ourselves is, do we honestly think that those apostles would have any other thought any differently about America? Do we not also have our own gods and goddesses? We may not call them Jupiter, Mars, Zeus, or Aphrodite, but we certainly worship money, sex, and even violence. Likewise, do we not have our own ability to break truth, have our own sinful traits, that the apostles would be shocked and think, truly, God? Even the Americans? I would say we're not so different, and that is something we cannot forget. Our nation would be considered no different than the Greeks or the Romans or any other pagan nation that the Jewish people encountered that the apostles would have a hefty time struggling with at that time. And all that the difference is, is the time frame. Now, if we are to love this country in which we dwell, then the best way to love it is through the definition of love as found in the scriptures. Such a love does not allow or make excuses for... The nation to do as it pleases, but will seek to uphold it against a greater standard than itself and a greater standard than ourselves. If we are to love this nation or any other nation, then the gospel is the best way to show that love. So, this reminds us of the reality of the judgment which is to come. This nation will not escape judgment. This nation will face the judgment of God for any and all atrocities, just as every other nation will face the judgment of God for any of all of their atrocities. Let us make sure not to be blind to our own nation's follies. For if we do, we will be prophets without voices. We will be like Jonah running from the message which is to be proclaimed. Find your voice and be bold to proclaim the truth, the righteousness of God trusting his grace and mercy, which can come upon any nation, should they seek repentance and faith, which is what we learned from Jonah. For nations consists of people, and if people turn in repentance and faith, then the nation does as well, which is something we talked about today in Sunday School, <laughs> and I didn't even know that was going to happen. Um, All righty, the second one. Something else to notice in this text is just how much God is doing and how much is his. In fact, if we add up all the times that God says, I will and my, in these verses, it comes to 14 times in eight verses. 14. So whether it be God doing the judgment or his recognition that his people, his land, his treasures have been taken, we see the activity of God as well as his possession of. Of these things. Do you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me tremendously that God loves what is His. He does not only love that which is His, but He will even intercede on its behalf. He will move for its benefit, for its salvation, for its peace. This reminder is not only for the nations of Israel and Judah, but even further and completed more fully within the church. For in the church are those whom God has called, those whom he has redeemed through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. As such, when we read about how God comes on behalf of the people, it is no less true for each of us who are in Christ. Thus, when we consider the New Testament, we remember just how often the apostles proclaim the love of God for us in Christ. It is of such a great height and depth that none could stand against us. Even when the world rises against us, by God's hand we are upheld even in the storm. Sometimes we forget about God. Sometimes it is easy for us to think of God moving in the Old Testament, making grand promises of their redemption and of final judgment against their enemies. And we forget that it is no less true for us. Consider what Paul says in Galatians 3, 7-9. Know, then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith paul reminds us how those who have faith in christ are the seed of abraham they are just as much the children of abraham as the jewish people As he also says in Romans, we have been grafted onto the tree of Abraham by faith. And that's Romans 11, 11 through 24. Thus the promise of enemies being conquered is true for us. The promise that judgment will come against those who rise against the people of God is just as relevant to us as it is to any other. In this way, remember, our inheritance is not a nation or our family, so to speak, Um, Here on earth, but instead it is an inheritance which is founded on Jesus Christ. And such an inheritance is greater than any other inheritance. Now what is so spectacular about this is that God does this on his own. It will not be done by our strength, our might, no. No. Instead, it is God who is able to cast down the great darkness. He is the one who is going to banish. He is going to judge. He is going to protect. And in the end, his righteousness is going to seize the day. To be loved by God, then, is a marvelous thing. It reminds us that we are more than conquerors, not because we are so tough, but because we are so weak and he is so strong. Though we were once lost in our darkness, God has penetrated the darkness with his light. And through him, we receive the great salvation of our God through his Son. This world desperately seeks to cast us aside. It is under the influence of darkness, and we can be sure that the darkness knows every chink in our, on our armor. We know that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking to devour Thus we combat the darkness with the light of Christ and we stand firm on the gospel knowing that this light is stronger than the darkness around us. We can do this because of God. We know that in the end those who belong to him are vindicated, are declared righteous. Even as we struggle against this present darkness we can be sure that our God is with us. He is for us and he is even in us. And this should give us Comfort and hope for each passing moment, each battle fought. The war, it is won in Christ. The darkness will not win, and it cannot conquer. Likewise, this encourages us to continue to live for God as he has called. If you are in Christ, and that means you belong to God. How should we act knowing that? Should we not seek faithfulness, justice, righteousness, grace, mercy, peace, and love in all things? Should we not seek to glorify glorify, the God who has claimed us by the blood of his Son? There is no excuse for us to be derelict in our call to follow him with all of who we are. I know that it can be hard. It can be hard to be a confessor of Christ. It can bring awkward conversations and situations. And it can and likely will bring about the worst of the world around you for being faithful to Christ. And because of this, because you are faithful to Christ, it will seek to exile you as the enemies of Judah and Israel did to them. Because the world would rather seek to destroy that which belongs to God than seek God itself. Still, we stand firm remembering the promise. God will pull us through. If we are exiled from the world, if we are harmed, hurt, and shattered, God will heal us and bring us back into the glory of His redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. So we can cast aside our doubts. We can cast aside our fears. For our God is on our side and none can stand against Him. Now, I'm wondering, um, a few weeks ago, I had asked you all to think about, every time we read Joel, we read through Joel, the gospel. Where do you see the gospel in Joel today? (laughs) Um, In what area of the gospel do you see Joel? Um, And maybe for some of you, you're thinking, okay, I'm starting to get it now. (laughs) starting to see it a little bit more. Because, again, the gospel is not just... Our salvation of our bodies. It starts long before that. Yes, salvation by Christ is the crux of the gospel. Without that, there's no good news. I mean, you could take the Bible, and then you take out Jesus, and it is very sad. It's very dark. It's very, very hard to hear. But with Jesus, it makes all things good from beginning to the end. And so the gospel begins with our origins, that we are created in the image of God. That we all have dignity, worth, that we can think, reason, that we can feel by his grace. We can show each other grace. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that you yourself are a person different than the person next to you? I know Clinton has a twin. That does not mean you're the same person, does it? A little different, aren't you? <laughs> but that's the thing. You have family members, and you're different. How awesome is that? And the reason why you're different is because we are creating the image of God. So we're different from each other. But we can all do things that are very similar as well, like love. Now the problem is, we are creating the image of God... And that's a wonderful thing. It's a grand thing. It's a spectacular thing. But it's also a problem because God can choose, can't he? He chose Abraham. He chose Noah. He chose David. He chose us. We can choose as well. And that's the problem with humanity is that the fall happened. We chose to sin rather than to follow after God. We chose disobedience rather than obedience. And because of that, we were cast out. And if you read the text, you think about how the blessings were given to Adam and Eve. How they were blessed to be fruitful and multiply. How they were blessed. It wasn't a command, it was a blessing to be fruitful and multiply. How they were blessed to be involved with creating things. Using their hearts and their minds. Then chapter 3 happens, and all that is cursed. Childbirth is cursed. Laboring with the land is cursed. The same things that were blessed earlier. Fascinating how the Bible works, isn't it? So from that moment on, everything is cursed. We're cursed because we continue to follow after sin. And then because of that, we deserve judgment. And you think, okay, no, we don't deserve judgment. I don't deserve judgment for my sin. I mean, look around me. (laughs) Look at all the people around me. You know, I'm not like one of those guys in the federal prison after all. I'm not that bad. The problem is, you're not judging yourself against other people. You're judging yourself against God. God is holy, completely just, completely righteous, completely wonderful. So any sin against him is worthy of judgment. And that's what we saw from Adam and Eve. One sin cast him out of the garden and put a curse on all of humanity. One. So one sin against God here and now deserved judgment, just as it did for them. So that's our predicament. Our relationships are broken. Our relationships with ourselves psychologically, our hearts tend to go towards things that are destructive. Um, So we're broken with ourselves. We're broken with our family members and each other. We're broken with our relationship with God. We're broken with our environment around us. How is that fixed? Can something broken fix itself? Like a mousetrap? Can it just magically just be like, oh, I'm fixed? I mean, if an animal gets shot in a leg, is it just going to be like, I'm just going to keep walking, I'll be fine? I don't know, actually. (laughs) I'm asking. Anyway, no. Um, The point is, is that we can't fix ourselves because we're so broken. And so because of that, this is where the Bible kind of gives us in a state of no hope. If we were telling people about this story so far to non-believers, they would say, Why would I follow Jesus? This is awful. Well, that's when Jesus comes in. And God redeems us for his glory he redeems us through his son jesus christ and that's what we see in joel as he prophetically says it that that's the whisper of the redemption of the people that they are going to be brought back out of exile just like you and i and because of what jesus has done we get to come back We get to worship God as he deserves. We get to follow after him the way that he deserves, the way that we were originally intended to follow after him. Not perfectly, but it's a start. And it's all because of what Jesus has done. Redemption. He brought salvation, just like he did in Joel. He did it. And all that requires of us is faith, that we are to believe that Jesus Christ and what he has done, And then we will be justified, and it also means turning away from our sin, following after Jesus Christ. It's not just that we have to believe, it's that we have to repent as well. Where does that lead? The future. It leads either to judgment for those who do not follow after God, who do not have faith in him, who do not repent of their sins, or it leads to glorification. To... Entering into the glory of God that is not dimmed by this world. Entering into an eternal state where we are with our God forevermore. C.S. Lewis, I'm um, stealing this now technically from Nancy Percy in chapter one, but she talks about how um, C.S. Lewis at the end of the Narnia series says further up and further in. Um, it's, it's just the beginning of the story and it just gets better and better and better and better. There's so much to Christianity, so much hope we have. Let's not lose our hope. And let us remember, too, the prophet Joel, he talked about the judgment to come. But he also talked about the salvation which comes. And both are fulfilled even further in Christ. So let Christ be the foundation. And let the gospel be the foundation for all of your life because it is a good foundation and it will lead you evermore into the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the prophets who spoke these words so that we would know when your son came that he was here who spoke about judgment, but also justification, who spoke about pain, and yet also redemption. And Lord, as we read these prophets, we hear the echoes of the gospel of something grand is going to happen. And Lord, we're on this side of eternity. The grand event has happened. It's not dark anymore. The light is beginning to shine. And so, Lord, give us faith. Give us hearts that ache and yearn after you. And give us hope for the future. For though we know that the gospel is true, we still encounter the darkness. And sometimes it is hard for us. But we know that we can trust you. And if we remember this, we'll continue forward in your grace and in your love. So remain with us, Lord, as we seek after you. And remind us of the promise so that we can lose all doubts. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less.